This morning is January 15th, it's 2006. Our message this morning is called Pour It Out. A Sunday special for a couple reasons. We've just gotten to know Gabe and Debbie Mays very well, and they are leaving to go do some things God's called them to do. And I hope at some point we'll get to work with them again. I kind of feel that in my spirit. But uh, we want to send them out with a blessing, thanks. So...
And that song that you just heard by Matthew, Pour It Out, something that he and his wife wrote together that uh, really expresses his heart and I think expresses what we need to talk about this morning. Um, I was looking for the lyrics to a Keith Green song before I heard this. And uh, Keith Green did a song, I don't know, early 80s, called Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Most people have no idea he's the one that wrote that. But he didn't write it as it's sung today. Uh, There's a whole section of the lyrics that have been completely removed. And it is, Oh Lord, my body's tired, but you keep reminding me of many holy, tireless men who spilt their blood for thee. And as truthful as that is, apparently it wasn't palatable to the Christian community because they rewrote the song. I don't think we need to make this gospel more palatable. The reality is when we took communion this morning, that was about a man who poured out his blood for you. And now you owe him nothing less than to pour out every drop of your life for him. When Matt wrote that song and he said, I am so tired, I don't have anything left to give, but then your spirit touches me and I'm healed and filled again, that is a cycle that Christians go through in their life. You will never be filled with all the power of God until you have learned to be emptied of everything that you have. We're going to get into that now. Uh, Turn with me to Judges 15. Did you all enjoy that song? Amen. I'm going to do what we can to get that on digital format and recording. Judges 15 is a pretty familiar story, at least to me. Uh, I preach from this a lot. But I just wanted to start in this passage today because I think it illustrates as well as anything the heart of God. It's funny, when I prepare for these messages, faces pop up. I wake up during the night thinking about how people would be affected by it and then it changes dramatically during worship as I know who is here. You know, uh, all the different areas that we might run into based on your needs, not mine. And I'm excited to get to do that. I'm excited that we're in a free forum where there's no ruling power over us that prevents us from following the Spirit's leading. All right. Okay, are you all in Judges 15? Amen. In Judges 15, we find the story of Samson. It's been harvest time. He goes to find his wife. His wife's been given to somebody else and he gets a little angry, as you can imagine. Nobody would like to come home one day and find out that your father-in-law gave your wife to somebody else. And uh, God really used this as an opportunity to put him at odds with the enemy. Samson was born for a specific purpose. His calling and his mission in life was to destroy the enemies of God. That's what he was born for. Not unlike the Son of God, who, 1 John 3, 8 says, appeared to destroy the devil's work. Samson and Jesus had very similar callings. They also had similar weaknesses. Does it surprise you to hear me say Jesus had a weakness? The Bible says that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength, so he does have them. Well, what are they? How could we talk about God's weakness? Well, in Samson's life, he fell in love with a woman that was not worthy of his love. Actually, two. Both of them foreign brides. Both of them outside the economy of Israel. Both of them completely and totally unworthy. 
One of them cost him his life. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, it should. Yeah, I would say that uh, Israel and us Gentile graftians are that wife that is unworthy of God's favor and that we cost him his life, but he willingly gave it because he could take it up again. And in the process, he would restore us. How beautiful. But Samson had one great enemy. Who was it? Y'all can talk to me this morning. Who was Samson's great enemy? The Philistines, right? Well, you'd like to think so. That's who the enemy was that he was supposed to be fighting. But let me tell you, who did him the most harm? His own family. His own family did. He was born for the purpose of engaging the enemy. He's supposed to be fighting the enemy. But let's pick up in Judges 15, verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? Why should you have to ask that? Why would a Philistine go to fight a Jew? Because they were enemies. But they're surprised that the Philistines are there to fight. Why are they surprised? They had come to a place in their life where they had made a treaty with the enemy. This is a dangerous place to be for Christians. Christians are supposed to be at war with the enemy 100% of the time, your whole life long. Not... A treaty at night, not a treaty on a weekend, not a treaty for a single day at war with the enemy. He's at war with you. It's kind of like in our country right now, there's this debate, should we have just left Iraq alone? You know, or have we made it worse by taking the fight to them? And the basic line of thought goes, no, they were already at war with us. We've just joined the war. Well, the, the church is in the same situation. And I'm not making political commentary here about Iraq. The devil is already at war with you. It's time to wake up and realize that and take the fight to him. I said real clearly, I've adopted an Israeli mentality. If one person in our church suffers and falls by the wayside, I'm going to find ten more to replace that one. One's not even really replaceable. But if the devil causes us to suffer loss 10%, I want to crush his head 100%. This is a mentality of a warrior and it's what God's called us to be. So these Philistines have showed up to fight and the Jews are surprised. The Jews of Judah are surprised. Why did you come to fight with us? I thought we were friends. We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Why do they want to take Samson prisoner? Why not just take these Jews prisoner? These Jews were not dangerous to them. These Jews had already weakened and compromised their lives. But Samson wasn't. God had allowed painful experiences in Samson's life that were a reminder he was at war with the enemy. Sometimes you need to realize that the loss that you suffered in your life, the hurt, the ridicule was to remind you there's an enemy so that you would be at odds with him all your life long so that you wouldn't lay down in the den of the lion and go to sleep while he devours you. That's painful, isn't it? You wouldn't think God would do that. But we serve the kind of God that will appoint a beating for a man that's on the right road headed the wrong direction down from Jerusalem to Jericho because it gives him an opportunity to change his mind. I thank God for those beatings physically and spiritually in my life because they've got me on the right track. We have come to take Samson prisoner, they, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to a cave in the rock of Etim and said to Samson, I want you to get this, 3,000 men. This is not one family that turned on him. It's not one church. It's the entire population of the town. 
and they all went out in mass to fight the Philistines? No. To tie up the man that was called to deliver them and hand him over to the enemy. Christians, be very wise. It is true. Not all the denominations around us have things right, just like we don't. But don't you be in the business of tying their hands and handing them over to the enemy. Don't go around slandering other men and women of God. Let God handle it. I've learned this lesson the hard way. I grew up in Christ in an environment where it was commonplace to run off at the mouth about other ministries. That is not okay. Even if they don't get it right. Because I don't want to be in the business of tying somebody's hands that is born to destroy the enemy, even if they're greatly flawed. Yeah, y'all should say amen for that. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? I want to ask you something. What has Samson done to them? What did he do? He didn't do a thing to Israel. He was fighting with the enemy. That's what he's supposed to do. But the way they looked at it is he disturbed the peace. Well, there's a problem. There's not supposed to be any peace. It's okay if you're being ridiculed because you've stirred up trouble with the devil. Have you ever heard Christians say, oh, well, you know, I didn't know if I should push that far. I didn't want to make the devil mad. Somebody sat in here a few weeks ago and said something about not wanting to rebuke or cast out a demon that was in uh, a family member because they thought they'd really make the devil mad. I thought, well, you pansy, just get out now, you know. And I realized it's not a pansy. She just didn't know because the church hadn't taught her. And we're going to get to that in a minute too. The Bible calls somebody who is an instructor and does not equip the students a fool. A fool. And in the Bible sense of this word fool, it means godless and so stupid you can't find God. That's literally what it means. We'll get to that. Yeah, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? The Philistines went up and camped at Judah, spreading out near Lehi. Uh, we went to take... Okay, verse 11. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave at the rock of Etim and said to Samson, Have you noticed Samson's not in the town with him? He's out in a cave in a rock. Remember what the Son of Man said when somebody wanted to follow him? Foxes have their holes. Birds have their nests. I don't have a rock to lay my head on. Sometimes doing God's work is a lonely occupation. Us married people need to be very, very happy that God's given us somebody to walk with us. There's a return for our work. What a blessing. Because you're not promised that. Paul didn't have it. At times, everybody in Paul's life left him while he was being stoned or put in jail. Being a servant of God can be a lonely thing because you're required to do what God says even if nobody else will. And He'll put you in positions where nobody else will. I promise that. He'll test your mettle does that to find out how much you really love Him. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to Him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. At least they were honest. How many times you had somebody say, Brother, be blessed. Let me pray for you. We love you. We just want to do it from a distance. And then throw daggers at you as you walked off to do God's will. It happens all of the time. How many times have you done it? Let me ask you that. Said, oh yeah, brother. Go and be blessed. Go into Iraq. I think you're a missionary there. That's great. And then turn to your friend and said, he won't ever make it. He'll be back in a month. 
He'd probably end up on CNN. You know? Think about that. We need to not be in the business of tying up and handing people over. He answered them, uh, let's see. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. That tells you a little bit about the state of the church in Samson's day, huh? And when I say church, I mean called out ones. The eclectic group of God's children. Swear to me you won't kill me yourself. Samson was not worried about the Philistines. He knew he was born for warfare with them. He was worried that his own people might kill him because they were used to having a foreign power rule over them. You will meet Christians in your life that are so used to being a slave to sin in areas of their life that when you begin to upset the apple cart, when you begin to say, you know, that is not okay, and I will help you. I'll do whatever I can. I've had weaknesses too. I have them now. But we need to get free. Come, brother, join hands with me. Let's pray. Let's take it to the enemy. There's one of two reactions. One is that they will love God and strive with you and be thankful for you. Another is, whoa, I've made a treaty in this area. Don't bother me. And if they get the chance, tie you up and hand you over to the enemy. That's where Samson is. People don't like their sin to be exposed. God is so merciful. He will work on it and work on it and work on it and work on it. And then because He loves you, if you can't get it right with Him, He'll bring somebody to you who will work with you, work with you. Can't get it right with them, He'll take it public. This happens all the time. I remember that. I remember that in my own life because it instills fear in me. There are no secrets in the kingdom. What I've done in a closet, so to speak, I guess that's not a great word. In a tiny hidden place, God will reveal before all of the creations this day or in a day to come. It'll happen. So we better live right. Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. Oh, I bet that relieved their conscience. We won't kill you. We just bind you so you can't do anything. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and they let him up from the rock. They bound him with new ropes. In the natural, they bound him with new ropes because they're stronger. There's no mystery there. But you can see in this, if you have eyes to see, when the devil attacks, he's sly. He doesn't appear before you in some kind of demonic horde ready to go to war because you would fight. He comes to you subtly through the voice of a friend, a mentor, Somebody's supposed to be a brother that says, no, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to hurt you there. And maybe they're right. But God's called you to go to Jerusalem. Comes through the voice of Peter standing there saying, oh no, Lord, never. Good intentions. I don't want you to be hurt, Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. But it will always be some new attack. It will be new because what you've already recognized in his schemes what you've already stepped over, what you've already conquered, is not a threat to you anymore. You know, you, you know the saying, you know, catch me once and uh, shame on you. Catch me twice. Maybe shame on you, but catch me three times and shame on me, right? After a while, you get wise to the devil's schemes. Or you should. You start to learn. So he's always looking for a new way to attack you. Always looking for a new way to bind you up. It's funny that the church is one of his best tools. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. Why are they shouting? 
Why are they upset? Why are they angry? This guy's bound by his own people being handed over as a prisoner. And already they're gloating. They're yelling, trying to intimidate him. He's being bound like a lamb. Again, sounds familiar, doesn't it? But that's not the end of the story. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax. And the bindings dropped from his hands. Saints, we need to quit throwing people away that look like they're tied up and bound. Maybe they're tied up and bound in sin. Maybe they're tied up and bound in rumor and lies. Because what we need to be crying out for is for them to be able to receive from the Holy Spirit and power whatever is in their life. Whatever it is will fall off like charred flax. The devil's newest, most powerful, most stringent attack cannot remain on you when you are filled with the Spirit. Now, get out of your head that I'm saying filled with the Spirit is doing something with your mouth or prophesying or laying hands on the sick. That is not being filled with the Spirit. Those are byproducts of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is being in the moment with God's power, in step with Him, in touch with His presence. And when you do that, nothing can hold you back. It's in that Spirit that we can say, I am victorious and more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. It's in that spirit that Paul can speak to the church and say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. That is the idea, that when God's power is in you, that will happen. You say, well, how do we get the power in us? We'll get to that. That, that is the problem. How do we get the power? Is it just speaking in tongues at an altar? Is it just dancing a little jig in a church service? Is that really it? I don't think so. That may be what we've made it, but that's not what it is. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. That gives you the idea that if Samson had turned his energy upon the Jews, the 3,000 that came after him, it could have been bad for them, huh? But he wasn't born for the destruction of the Jews. He submitted to their torture. The church should be glad that some of the men of God that it's fed to the lions didn't turn their attention upon the church. Because truthfully, the people that are tying you up and handing you over are usually more flawed than the man who's being handed over. It's why they don't like you. It's why they tie you up. It's why they say bad things about you and want to give you over to the enemy. Your life exposes sin and theirs. It makes them feel bad. He finds a fresh jawbone. Why a fresh well, fresh jawbone in the natural because if you picked up an old brittle one, wouldn't be any good. You'd smack one guy and it'd turn to dust. Be like chalk. <laughs> you know? But a fresh jawbone in the spiritual because you need your daily bread, your daily anointing with God. He'd been filled with the Spirit many times in his life. God's Spirit was upon him for the destruction of the enemy. And yet that's not enough. He needed God's anointing for that day, for that moment, for that specific purpose. So he finds a fresh jawbone. Saints, too long we cling to what God did in 1993, 1972, 2000. When God did that, it doesn't matter. Those are great things. But it means nothing if you can't receive from Him here, now, right now. It means nothing. You're only as strong as you are close to God. 
That's the truth. Your pedigree, how many pastors have been in your family, how long you've walked with God are all unimportant. There is no coasting in the kingdom. You may have sold all of your belongings and went to a foreign country, but if you're a sluggard today, you're a sluggard. doesn't matter. It doesn't work that way. There is no royalty in Christianity where you are simply noble by birth. You are noble for doing something specific. And we'll get to that. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. I wonder if the Hebrew reads that way. (laughs) I've never really looked at it. I know what the King James would say. (laughs) With a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone. He threw away the jawbone. And the place was called Ramoth Lehi. I'm curious. Why did he throw it away? Those of you that have heard me talk on this subject before know why. That jawbone wouldn't be any good for him tomorrow. God provides you a jawbone each day, each attack, each new situation. You need new, fresh anointing from God. And you need that because you cannot rest on your laurels in the kingdom. Honestly, if this had been me, I'd have framed that jawbone. I'd have put a little inscription on it that says at Lehi I whipped a thousand Philistines with this thing I'd bring y'all all by and find a subtle way to go you know uh, isn't this pretty what I've done with this wall you see the yellow paint and the nice pictures oh the jawbone you're interested in that no we won't talk about that oh well look look at the great things I've done for God I went to a pastor's office with Matthew one time <laughs> as we were walking around this pastor's office and I use the term pastor loosely he's more of a politician than a pastor Aside from telling us that he hated his congregation, hated his job, and his wife hated him and hated the church, he began to show me his jawbones all over the wall. They were different kind of jawbones than the kind that I might like. They were gold-plated. Pictures of him with presidents. Pictures of him with important people. And all I could think about was pictures of him with everybody except Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, he had to wear a flap jacket at his own denomination's meeting in case somebody got mad and wanted to shoot him. I thought, wow, maybe you should consider a new denomination. Because he was very thirsty. This is a big verse. Because he, Samson, was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. Now tell me, why do you think Samson is thirsty? Let's just be honest. Anybody in here ever wrestled? Some of you wrestled with my sons. (laughs) That's a chore, isn't it? Those two little guys, I tell you, take on one bean, you get the whole burrito in the Stevens family. They work in tandem. One's four, one's eight. and One goes low and the other goes high. And if they can get you down, buddy, you're in trouble. They don't know what mercy is. I'm trying to teach them. I began wrestling in high school. I had a coach named Barry Harwell. And uh, he was not a very big guy. I mean, he was... He looked like a cereal box, actually, now that I think about it. You know, he's about this tall and equally wide. And uh, deceptively strong, muscular, but covered in some baby fat, if you will. And uh, being prideful, like I was, I thought to myself, in fact, I may have leaned over and told somebody, oh, I'm going to hurt this guy, okay? Well, a few minutes later, I'm tied in all these intricate little knots on the ground by Barry. And uh, he's showing me new and inventive ways to experience pain in joints I didn't know I had. 
And I found out something. All of the track, all of the wind sprints, all of the football practice, everything, nothing was exhausting. Hours of working out was not as exhausting as wrestling. For three minutes. In football, you exert for 20 seconds, then you get a huddle. Boy, I like the huddles. Then 20 more seconds, then you get a huddle. There was no huddles. And for three minutes, Barry would just resist my every movement. Every once in a while, grind his hands in my eyes and just laugh and talk about how that was legal. Uh, find new and inventive ways to hurt me in areas men don't like to be hurt in, you know. And uh, it was exhausting. The most exhausting thing I've ever done. Well, what has Samson just done? We say, oh, well, Samson took a jawbone and he killed a thousand men. Think about that, guys. How did he kill a thousand men? He had to overpower and take... Guys, I, I, I don't know about you, but it's not so easy to take someone's life from them. Lives are not, not something you just give up freely. I was watching a movie called Kingdom of Heaven the other day. Anybody seen that? Liam Nielsen's a tough old bird in that movie. And uh, this boy's coming to him who's his son. He says, have you come to take my life? Because I warn you, it might not be so easy as you shall think. <laughs> it's not easy to take a man's life from him. And Samson did it to a thousand men. Do you think he was thirsty? Yeah, I would say he's thirsty. This is not all that unlike when Jesus goes into the desert as led by the Spirit. Do you think he was hungry and thirsty after 40 days of battling the wild animals and the devil? I would say so. Now, while we're on that note, how thirsty do you get? Why well, we pay $1.25 for bottled water and have it with us all of the time. We live in states that are so full of water, we don't know what it is to be in drought. We live in a country that's so blessed with water, glaciers, aquifers, all of those things, that you don't know what it's like to be without water. I'm talking about a spiritual thirst, too, that mimics this natural thirst. Do you think Samson was thirsty. The problem with Christians is we don't often allow ourselves to get thirsty. You know why? If you managed to knock down one, you would have celebrated and stopped right there. Went and told everybody what a great person you were. Probably been made a youth pastor or a pastor in your church or denomination. Forgetting the fact that there were 999 out there still to go conquer. Samson was thirsty because he had spent everything that he had to defeat the enemies of God. The great preachers that you'll read about are not the great theologians. They're not the prince of preachers, as some have said, because they're eloquent of speech. They're the ones that could preach seven and eight times in a day because the need was that great. They're the kind that would wrestle in prayer, as Smith Wigglesworth did, all night when nobody sees it because he was concerned about the people he would meet the next day. In Christ, we need to be able to pour ourselves out to the point where you are thirsty. Most of our cups are so full that you can't pour any more in it because we never pour any of it out. Samson has just spent his last bit of energy and then something unique happens. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Lord, I've given all I have to give. Isn't that just like Matthew's song that he sang? I've got no, there's nothing left of me. Is the enemy going to come run me over because I'm sleep deprived? Because I have no more finances? Because I don't know 
where my next meal is going to come from. I have nothing left, Lord. How am I going to feed my kids? Is the enemy going to run me over? Well, what did God say? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. It doesn't matter how hollow the place is. There is not a place on earth where God cannot reach you with His provision if you need it bad enough. We sit and we whine because we are not as rich as someone else. You don't see more provision from God because you've not yet gotten poor. Most of the time our tank is at least three quarters full and we're whining about where the next gas station is. But it's not even important until you get below the eighth of a tank. My wife hates that, by the way. She puts gas in $10 at a time. It's a 44-gallon gas tank. 44 gallons. $10 buys you, you know, what? About three and a half, four gallons now? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. I say, fill the thing up, baby. She goes, well, we have a budget. I said, same amount of money either way. Christians are filling their tank $10 at a time. They're filling their tank $10 at a time. Run from this meeting to be entertained to that meeting to be entertained. Make your decisions about whether or not you'll do something with God based on how much sleep you've had, based on how much money you have in your account, or whether your friends will like you, or whether it will put your job in jeopardy and you are guaranteed to be a failure in the kingdom of God. Guaranteed. Oh, men may love you. You may be the pastor of the largest church in the world, but you'll have no favor with God. I promise it. Because this is not how the men of God before us earned favor with God. They're in favor with God by being beaten, shipwrecked, hungry, naked, sleepless nights, pressed with concern for the churches, not being fat and warm and well-fed. What are we striving for? It is a badge of honor to be spent in the Lord's service. It is a badge of honor to be worn out for God. When does Amalek attack? We learned this a few weeks ago. When does Amalek attack? When you are wearied and worn out. What does that tell you about the fat fool Christians? They're never engaging the enemy. It's when you're wearied and worn out from doing God's will that the devil looks for you to hurt you. But what do we find out here? I call this the in hakor principle. It's in that hollow place where you are empty that God will break forth with a spring to fill you up. That's where your power comes from. It's not from leaving something in reserve. My friend Brad Lively had no pause switch in his body. Matthew and I learned to brother-in-law it. When we had to run wind sprints, one year we lost ten football games in a row. God, that was fun. Ten football games in a row and every, every uh, touchdown that the other team scored, the number of points that they scored, we had to run a certain number of wind sprints. I don't remember other than the lights on the football field cut off before we were done every practice. And there was a difference between some of the people. Guys like Matthew and I, who some would argue were smart in a worldly sense, we learned who was supposed to win each wind sprint, who was supposed to come in second, third, fourth, fifth, and then we had somewhat of a cooperative collective bargaining agreement. Okay, If the guy in the lead runs a little bit slower, then second place can run a little slower, third place. As long as we all finish in the same thing, coach won't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, when you pass the coach to you, you got to... Oh. 
Oh, there was a problem with this. You know how there's always one kid in the class that busts the curve for everybody? Brad Lively would run all out with a reckless abandonment of, of concern for self until he passed out. He could actually throw up and run at the same time. It was amazing. <laughs> and it killed it for the rest of us. But that's the kind of heart God looks for. The one that leaves nothing for the trip home. The one that leaves nothing in reserve, pours out and trusts God to supply the needs. That is what God is looking for. But it is a rare thing. It's hard to be a Christian. This church is calling the precious metals of the earth to be formed into something for God. But they're precious because they're rare. You get to decide whether or not you'll be that person. When you could roll over and go back to sleep or get up and help somebody move, what do you do? When you could go to church, not because you need to be there, but because somebody needs you to be there. You go, oh well, I only got six hours sleep. Be glad you got any at all. There are Christians around the world that are sleep deprived and tortured for Christ. You should hope that you get to share in their sufferings. Do you know why? That's the only way to share in the glory that will be revealed. Where there is no suffering, there will be no glory. Spend your life in comfort and you will find no glory. I promise it. You'll pass through those fires as one who is naked on the other side. Oh, excited to be saved. But children in other countries that clung to Jesus with all of their heart and gave their lives will outpace you in the kingdom. This is not an easy message, is it? No, it's not easy to live either. This is what we're called to, though. It's what we're called to. If it was easy, anybody would do it. By the way, in Hakor, fountain of him who cried. They named the place fountain of him who cried. God will be a fountain to the man that cries out to him. You can only cry out with that kind of desperation when you've reached a place of desperation, though. Most people never get there. You talk to God about what you would like, not to God about what you need to survive. Because you've never allowed yourself to get vulnerable. How many times have you thought, that, that gospel is just not practical? I felt like the Lord might have told me to empty my bank account, but that's not very practical. You know what you're really saying? I have to hold something in reserve for me. Because I don't trust that God can supply my need. I could care less about your finances. I'm not talking about finances, but it just so happens that those are analogies everybody understands. Isn't that amazing? I wish we were farmers. We could talk about grain. <laughs> yeah, speak it, brother. One of the things about this is that once in our poor spring came up, it didn't go away when the No. Because the man of God's deeds through the centuries reveal the fountains of life. When you will go where nobody else will go and when you will do what nobody else did, when you will pour your life out in a way that nobody else has, it reveals something about God and His nature for everybody to see for all time. We stood the other day and swapped stories about men of God in New Orleans. Men I've never met, but I've been weaned on their stories the times they found the fountain in the hollow places. This encourages real Christians and it scares the lukewarm. Moving on from Judges. Let's go to 2 Kings because I can't seem to preach a message anywhere close to 60 minutes these days. Come on, we'll try. I just want you to get it. I want to get it. I want to learn to live it. In 2 Kings 4, 
Thank you, my son. That's my firstborn right there. He won't have any problem getting daddy's blessing. In 2 Kings 4, here's another principle. The Enhakor principle is, if you will allow yourself to be spent, emptied, then God will fill that hollow place. 2 Kings 4, verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to, to Elijah. She what? Cried out to Elijah. Sound like a cry of desperation to me. Your servant, my husband, is dead. Whose servant? Elijah's servant. Her husband. Sounds like this man. Worship God. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. You ever wondered, wow, if I do the work of God and I don't worry about my 401k, if I put value upon God's kingdom rather than upon retirement, and I'm not telling you not to invest in retirement. It's a good thing to invest in. I was an investment banker for a long time, so that tells you where I stand with those things. But if you put your trust in that versus your trust in doing God's will, something's wrong. In fact, God will have to strip you of it. So this woman is in a position where her husband has gone on to be with the Lord after serving the Lord. And she's saying, I don't have anything. We poured out our lives in the service of God. We are empty. And I'm crying out to you because I don't want my sons in slavery. Do you think that was desperation? Anybody that's had children, it's one thing to think about you being drawn and quartered. It's even harder to think about your wife being drawn and quartered. But what about your innocent children? And what if it's for a choice you made? How hard would that be? But this family let themselves get in that position doing God's work. Doing God's work. One of my favorite songs Keith Green ever wrote was I Pledge My Head to Heaven because he offers his children to the Lord and says whether they're kicked or beaten or shattered or torn, he still belongs to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? We think that's awesome. Everybody else thinks it's crazy. That's crazy. The wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elijah, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take away my two boys as his slaves. Elijah replied to her, How can I help you? Well, that's not what you want to hear, is it? How can I help you? (laughs) You'd like him to know, huh? Tell me, what do you have in your house? No matter how empty you feel, you always have something to offer the Lord. Something. None of you have gotten to a place where there is nothing left to give. And what Elijah is saying is, Sweetheart, I understand. Your husband poured out his very life. Now you're worried about your two boys, but what do you have left to give to God? God always requires you to go a step further than you think you can go. That's what faith is. If it was within your sight if it was within your ability, if it was within your means, it wouldn't require God. You're not yet empty. So this man looks at her and says, what do you have in your house? How can I help you? Because it always requires you to do something that God can bless. Matthew taught on that. A natural means to a supernatural blessing. Even a blind man that needed eyes, we started with mud. It requires you to give something to show God you believe. requires it. Again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about your life. 
Don't tell me you feel called to be an evangelist to the world and you cannot step across the street to tell your neighbor. Don't tell me that you are a prophet to the nations and you do not have the courage in a garage church to prophesy from one side of the room to the other. It starts somewhere. You feel called to be a musician. Start by playing songs in your own home. You feel called to be a teacher. Let's start by preparing a message. So I don't have anybody to share it with. Find somebody. That's part of being a teacher. I found a guy in a coffee shop today that was talking to the wall. He talked to the wall for about three hours. I kept looking, thinking certainly he has one of those you know, clips on his ear. And he's No, he was talking to the wall. That'd be good practice. Nothing else? I could go preach to him. I said, well, Eric, why are you being so silly? Guys, there are people dying on the vine all around us. If we get our hearts right, God will show us where to go and what to do. I promise. I promise. I was sharing stories about Jonas Robinson the other day. He started preaching. This guy's got a church of thousands. He's a man of God revered by most. He started preaching at a traffic light to the cars. First time he ever preached a sermon more than three minutes is when a car full of Mexicans was broken down. (laughs) When the light changed, they didn't leave. He didn't know what to do. (laughs) Start with something. So he says, what do you have? How can I help you? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except. It's the except that God's looking for. Your last little bit. Except a little oil. Elijah said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. That could be humbling, couldn't it? They'll think, I'm crazy, Lord. What would I need these empty jars for? I only have a little oil. Why would you tell me God wouldn't tell me to do that? We want to sit in our room in our bed and hide in our room and wait for God to do something. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom works by you being spent in a service, by you putting your faith on the line, by you stepping out and risking something. Faith is not faith if it doesn't border on your responsibility. How do you know the difference? Well, you better learn to hear from God. Faith is not faith if nothing is at risk. This woman is going to have to risk the only bit of provision she has left and her reputation in the community. You think God would ask somebody to do that? You don't think about it long. The Word says He'll ask you to do that. Well, that's just them. That's ancient Israel. I assure you it's you sitting in your seat right now where you are in your circumstances. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you don't put something at risk, you're not in faith. Period. Elijah said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. God, I love that. I love that. You know, when you first get Spirit-filled, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. You're interested in it, right? You're starting to feel God move you. You go to one of your first services where... They're not bringing in the sheaves. And what do you do? You want to raise your hands, right? But you're nervous. You're scared. We start getting these kind of things, you know? Eventually, you get free of your inhibitions and you'll sing, you'll dance, you'll do whatever before the Lord because you've learned there's freedom in it. When God tells you to give the little bit that you have left for something, when He tells you to put something at risk, when you manage to get the strength to be obedient, you say, okay, Lord, but... You know, if i got to go witness to my neighbors, the guy next door is pretty nice. I'll go to him only 
neighbor. There's two in his house. That's neighbors. It qualifies God. We want to go only as far as we have to go. So the prophet tells the woman, don't you go ask for just a few. And there's a reason for it. You are blessed in proportion with what you put at risk in your obedience. You are blessed in a proportionate fashion to what you've poured out. If I had a jar in here, in fact, here we go. The more that you pour out into something else, the more room that it leaves for you to be filled. The more you hold back, the less you can receive. That's how this works. You want to be totally full of God? Pour out your life. He says, don't you ask for just a few jars, sweetheart. He's trying to tell her the way to be blessed. Thank God she's obedient. Then go inside and shut the door behind you, you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars as each is filled. Put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring and pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. God is able to pour more oil than you can contain. Your job is to find a bigger container or more containers. You cannot pour more of your life out than God can pour in. Now, the hypocrites have taken this message and made it a prosperity message. That's not what this is. It's true that oil provided for her uh, monetary means. This is about your life. You cannot pour out more than God can pour in. The secret, the secret to being useful in the kingdom, to being powerful in battle, is learning to pour out so that God can pour in. Leaving nothing in reserve. Realizing there's only a few minutes left on the clock, so to speak, and you need to give it all. Don't you get sick of hearing athletes say, I give it 110%. But I'd be happy if you gave it 80%, truthfully. There is no 110%. But what they're trying to express is I gave it all I had. Oh, that's an attitude that we express, that we say, but how many people are doing it? When is the last time your eyes burned and your stomach hurt because you were doing something for God and you didn't have time to eat or sleep? At that Brownsville thing, those pastors found out exactly what that was like, didn't they? So, well, why were they so blessed? You go without sleep for about six, eight, nine, ten months, few years, because you're meeting the needs of other people. And tell me if God doesn't bless you. That's an empty jar. And the more empty jars you can get, the more anointing that you can get to flow. That's how this works. So the Enhakor principle is God will open up a hollow place for you. He'll be a fountain to him that cried. This principle is, doesn't matter how empty you are or how many empty jars there are, God's able to fill them all. The only reason there wasn't more oil flowing is there were no more jars. So well, I just don't feel God moving much in my life. Get out and do something, sluggard. Get out and do something. You will feel God move. Get in step with His Spirit. Care for the oppressed. Cry for those that are in, in injustice. Go help a widow, paint her house. Do something. The anointing is not for us to sit on our salvation. The anointing is not for us to be complacent. If you want more anointing in your life, more power in your life, find an empty jar. And you know where you find them? In you as you pour out. So, okay, well, I'd like God to touch my sons. Teach them to pour out. They're empty jars. 
like God to touch my wife. Jennifer got healed in the service last week. Do you all know that? Dramatically, suddenly, totally healed. She'd been in pain for months and months and months. It had gotten so bad that she was in pain when she woke up and when she went to sleep. Do you know how she got in pain though? Serving. She won't tell you that. I'll tell you it because I see it. She got in pain from serving others. That's an empty jar. So God was able to meet that need. Isn't that awesome? I'm not here to tell you how great... Well, I can tell you how great Jennifer is. But you all know that, don't you? Empty jars get filled. In Philippians, Paul described his life in Philippians 2.17 as being poured out like a drink offering. Poured out like a drink offering. Say, man, that's exciting. Paul, like a drink offering. But what does that mean? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, you find out. 2 Corinthians 11, 22-29, he says, I labored harder than everybody else. I worked harder than everybody else. I was beaten more often, flogged more severely. I was shipwrecked. I was hungry and I was thirsty. That's pouring out your life like a drink offering. Doing whatever the job required, no matter what the cost. And it's because of that. It's because of Paul being poured out like a drink offering, laboring beyond everybody else, that you read the words in Colossians. And turn with me to that. Colossians 1. Is it okay if I'm not reading all of these Scriptures to you? Trying to learn to preach within a reasonable time period. I cut 15 minutes out of that last message to get it to fit on a 90-minute CD. (laughs) In Colossians, chapter 1, verse 28, we find a profound thing. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ, To this end, I labor, struggling with all His energy which so powerfully works in me. Paul had learned that when he emptied himself out, God's energy began to work in him and did it powerfully. If you wondered, how on earth could Paul be stoned in one city and get up and preach? How could he be thrown out of a meeting In Ephesus, where they all want to tear him limb from limb and him fight with the other apostles to go back in and address the crowd. How could he have every man that he knew, including Luke, his companion, and Silas, and Agabus, and all of these mighty men saying, don't go to Jerusalem, and him saying, I'm ready to go and not only be beaten and mistreated, but to give my life. And Luke writes, when he could not be dissuaded, we agreed to let him go. You ever wondered how a man could do this? You're supposed to wonder. You're supposed to know there's no way a man could do that if he didn't have all of the power of God working powerfully in him. But how did he get it? Was Paul just a prodigy? Was he just a special person unlike any other on the planet? No, he chose to be that. And you can too. He got empty and so God filled him. How did Paul look at Elimus and blind him? How did Paul have the sentence of death in his heart and stand up and walk away? How did he shake a snake off into the fire? He stayed an empty vessel that God could fill all of the time. So God supplied his every need, just like Matthew's song said. When you pour out and he pours in, you find out where you end 
and he begins. Awesome lyrics, Matthew. Awesome because it's the Word. Awesome lyrics, Cassie. That's where the Word is trying to get us at our end and His beginning all of the time. Jesus did this to the point, to the point where He was declared as God's representative and as God. So much so that when the devil confronts Him, when death confronts Him, finds himself to be facing God who just happens to look like a man because the man had ended. His flesh was not there and God had begun. Now when I say that, I'm not describing Jesus as becoming deity. He was deity. Okay? Don't let that bother your minds. Ephesians 1.19 says it was this same power which was exerted in Christ when He was raised from the dead. How did Jesus get the kind of power in Him that would raise a human being's body from the dead. Nobody prayed for him, you know. And all of the other examples, somebody touched somebody. Somebody acted as God's representative and it happened. How did this happen for Jesus? Would you say he was empty when he was put in that grave? He gave all he had to give. And so God could fill him to all the fullness of the measure of God. You hear those words? Be filled with all the fullness of the measure of God. And how full is God? It's an innumerable supply. So Jesus had power beyond limit because He was empty beyond limit. I probably have about ten more minutes here. So let me get... Let me get to 2 Kings. Let's do that. Go back to 2 Kings. Are you all getting the point? Isaiah 41, 17-20 speaks of God meeting Israel's needs because they were thirsty. Psalm 107, 1-8 teaches us that even our hard life from rebellion, from whatever it is that's caused you to be in dry and thirsty places, God looks to satisfy the thirsty. He's looking to satisfy the thirsty. Are you all in Second Kings? Hold your finger there. I want to read you one more. I promised you I would do this and I don't know, I got shy. Isaiah 32. I told you I rarely lie when I'm preaching. Didn't say I never lied. I hadn't been shy in my whole life. Isaiah 32. Keep your finger in 2 Kings. Isaiah 32. Verse 5. No longer will the fool be noble, called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. What does the fool do? He spreads error concerning the Lord. Error. The hungry he leaves empty. And from the thirsty, he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies. Even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans. And by noble deeds, he stands. What's the difference between the fool and the noble man? The noble man makes noble plans and by his deeds he stands. I want to submit to you that the fool is the false teacher and they abound. 
They are full of words that do not water the soul. They are full of teaching that is not meat and will not satisfy your hunger. But you get to choose whether or not you're going to be a fool like them or noble. What did the nobleman do? He made noble plans. Well, that's exciting. Most of you do that. Make noble plans. But he stood by his noble deeds. It's not enough to make plans about God. It's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to think, I would really like to do that, Lord, with all of my heart, and then go watch Star Trek and go to bed. It's not okay. Eat Hot Pockets and play on the computer. Not okay. All of those things can be fun, and incidentally, I do all of those things. A noble man is one who not only makes the plans, but his noble deeds stand beside him. That's pouring yourself out in noble deeds. The only reason we don't do the things we plan to do is we reason in the moment that the cost is too high. How many times have you set your alarm at 5 o'clock in the morning and then hit the snooze? Huh? What's that snooze really say? I would have liked to have got up at 5, but I've just evaluated the cost and it's too high. (laughs) What's your mind start doing? Justifying all the reasons that you don't need to get up at five. You can snooze it one more time. And if you're like me, one will turn into two, then three, then four, then five. I had an alarm clock for a long time that didn't have any more than five snooze opportunities. They were spaced seven minutes apart and you had five of them. So do you know what I did? I got a new alarm clock. Are you all in Second Kings? I want noble deeds to go along with my noble plans. The church excels at making noble plans and it fails at having noble deeds. We want the best thing. We believe it. We're excited about it. We just don't do it. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? What if Samson had said, wow, I'm bound up. I'm tied up. Here come the Philistines. I'm going to whoop them good. I'm going to beat them down. You like that saying? I'm going to bust them down. Wouldn't that be a great plan? That's a noble plan, huh? But then he didn't do it. We wouldn't be reading about him, would we? Oh, we would. It'd say he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It would say he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to read about a king. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you know what? It wasn't that he actually did evil. It's that he didn't do good. It's not really that he did evil things. It's that he failed to do good things. And so the Lord said he did evil things. Isn't that interesting? Okay, we're going to try to close with this. And I'm going to skip the other 470 scriptures that I have in mind to preach. Second Kings 13. I hope to leave you a little hungry today. Second Kings 13, starting in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, that's an important distinction, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. This king, uh, Jehoaz, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do you know how he did evil? He did evil by not turning away from the sins that a previous king committed. As for the other events of Jehoash, uh, all he did and all his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his fathers, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried 
in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, see that word now? Now that you know the whole overview, let's pick up at a point in the story now where Elijah was suffering from the illness from which he would die or from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he recried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, does that sound like a term of endearment? My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Of course it is. He's saying he's Israel's military might. He's Israel's leader. But didn't you read earlier? We said this was a king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, how could that be? I was reading Josephus about this king. And Josephus said he was a good man. Josephus said he had a good temperament and was well-liked. Josephus, a historian, writing in the time of Christ backwards about him. Why would some people say he was well-tempered, well-liked, a good man? And the Bible said he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we'll see if we can get a little insight into his character. It might not be what you think it is. In fact, this could be convicting. Y'all want to close it and not read it? No. Oh. Y'all like conviction. Me too. Spurs me on to righteousness. Elijah said, Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Aram. That's Syria. Elijah declared, You will completely destroy the Armenians at Aphek. What did he say? You'll completely destroy them. A bow and arrow in the Bible is symbolic of God's judgment. Then he said, Take the arrows. The king took them. Elijah told him, Strike the ground. Now this word strike here is more like beat. Beat the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry and said with him, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram, completely destroying it. But, by, but now you will defeat it only three times. Stay there. What? what on earth is that about? Did God really care how many times the guy hit the ground with the arrows? You're going to find out this typified his whole life. God had good things in store for him. He had planned for him noble plans. But this king had a half-hearted commitment. He never could muster up enough to do all that God told him to do. He always stopped short. Sometimes a quarter of the way. Sometimes halfway. But he never completed the task. He made noble plans, but he had no noble deeds to stand by him. He never allowed himself to get fully empty. If that guy had beat the ground until he was so worn out, until the prophet told him to stop, he'd had victory everywhere he went. The Bible goes on to say, he fights with the Assyrians. He can't even whip the daddy. Ben-Hadad, the, the son of the Assyrian, comes and he beats him. But he only beats him three times. He could have completely destroyed these enemies of Israel. But this was symbolic of his commitment. It was half-hearted. This is where the church is. I'm going to be honest. This is where the church at large is. Noble plans, no follow-through. Always talking about what we will do. Never doing. Never. And if we do go do it, we only go far enough to where it begins to hurt a little. And then we stop. You know? can't be that way. It can't. 
Just a couple of generations before this, the kings of Israel turned the whole world upside down. And this one, because he's not willing to go all the way with God, fell short. He even finds himself in a war with the king of Judah. A civil war in Israel. How sad is that? The Beatitudes, right? Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are the hunger, hungry and thirsty. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They will be filled. Quit being scared to be hungry or thirsty. God will fill you. Allow yourself to get there. Get at the end of your rope so that you can see God's deliverance. One of the first public messages Jesus ever taught, one of His first statements is, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. John 4. What did He tell that woman? John 4 is the woman at the well. What did He tell her? He said, Hey, I give you some water, sweetheart, and when you drink it, you'll never get thirsty again. He said, Well, I thought the whole idea was to thirst. Well, that's why He said she'd never get thirsty again. He said, it will become in you a spring welling up to eternal life. Get this, welling up. we got a spring down here, okay? It's around my belt line, a spring. And every time I start to get empty, I pour myself out, it wells up within me to meet my need. The Holy Spirit indwelling you will meet your every need. You cannot pour out more than He can pour in because He's in you and His job is to fill you up. And God doesn't fail at His job. You may fail to pour out, but He will never fail to pour in. The Elijah principle. One with the widow. You just need to learn to get hollow sometimes so that there's something to fill. A new anointing. A freshness because you've done something for God. Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8, the man I give without cost, without any cost, no charge to anybody who wants to drink of this spring. Isaiah 55, 1 through 5, says the same thing. Some of the last recorded words in the Bible, some of the very last recorded words in the Bible, last paragraph, it's Revelation 22, 17. You know what it says? Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever is thirsty, be honest. How many in the American church could answer that call? Whoever's thirsty. We need to get to a place where we're looking. Who can I pour out into? How can I spend my life? You're going to be tired anyway, friends. Your body's going to hurt when you get up anyway. Might as well spend your life on something worth spending it on. Have you ever gone with a budget, spent your money and come back and go, wow, what did I get for this? The same thing's going to happen to people. Your body is going to break down. Your mind, your mental acuity will start to go some. You won't remember things like you used to. Your physical strength will fade. As hard as that is to believe. I stand before you as an example. And you'll have to look back upon your life and go, I'm worn out. What did I do with all that I had? It needs to be something worthwhile. I want God to bury me on a mountain. <laughs> you know? And I'm teasing. But you understand what I'm saying? You want to look back with pride. Pride in what God accomplished through you. Not because you were the great man, because you were absolutely not. And He filled your every weakness with all of His power. And it filled all the heavens in every way. That's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to do. 
Isaiah 44, 1-6 said that God's desire for Israel was to put them in a place where they would learn to thirst for Him so that He could satisfy their thirst. Most troubles that come in your life are just God's way of getting you a little thirsty. How much better would it be for Him not to have to send trouble your way to get thirsty? If you could get thirsty on your own initiative because you were pouring yourself out. Y'all stand up and let's pray. Oh, Before we pray, stand up. I want to read you something. I went to dinner with a beautiful couple last night and this woman had a quote for me and I don't know who she was quoting. I'll find out. But I loved it. This is a freeing kind of thing. I'm going to write it in my Bible. She's quoting a man of God and what he learned in his life through God's working. It says, To inoculate me from the praise of man, he baptized me in the criticism of man until I was no longer controlled by the approval of man. Come on now. That's good.